You know, we were talking about those different kind of relationships. See, most people have relationships in which they fill their needs. It's like an automobile and a gasoline station. Their relationships are about filling their needs. They're a kind of a place to get away from it all. Kind of a place to hide. Have you got the courage to transform your relationship, your friendships, your relationships at work, into a space for commitment, into, the spa into a space for promising, for committing, See, I wonder what two people having a lot of fun, maybe on vacation, I wonder what those two people look like when the context for their relationship is mutual empowerment rather than exchanging complaints. Very few of us are willing to commit ourselves to relate at that level. We're too damn busy paying attention to what's missing. We're too damn busy paying attention to our complaints. We're focused on I want, I like, I don't like, I don't want, I think, my opinion is, you should, you shouldn't. I've shared with some of you, I have this exercise that I've developed, a spiritual exercise. Where you go out to the ocean about three, four in the morning. If you don't live on the ocean, you go to the mountains. If you don't live around the mountains, you go out into a field. You get off by yourself where you can look up and see the stars. You tell the stars what he or she should. And then tell the stars what you like and what you don't like, and what you think, and what you don't think. And you see the response of the stars to your most precious stuff. camera's been on it, but I really love this quotation on the board over here by Camus. For the first time I laid my heart open to the benign indifference of the universe. The benign indifference of the universe are represented by the stars when you speak to them. I consider this Rilke quote to be almost the same statement. 
If I don't manage to fly, someone else will. The Spirit wants only that there be flying. As for who happens to do it, in that, he only has a passing interest. It's like it doesn't work. Shame on you. Do you know that the stars don't care that your relationship doesn't work? You think that soap opera is significant. Because those other soap opera fans listen. They only listen to create an audience for their own soap opera. If it ain't great, why don't you shut up about it? The Spirit wants only that there be flying. As for who happens to do it, in that the Spirit has only a passing interest, like not much. Not you? Okay, not you then. You see? It's not working for you? Okay, not you. You know the book Arabian Nights, sometimes called A Thousand and One Nights? For a long time I wondered how come that book wasn't called A Thousand and Two Nights. Then I finally realized why that book was called A Thousand and One Nights. There were a thousand good nights and one bad one. Keeps you on your toes. You all put up with a lot of stuff. Really? And then complain about it. Don't put up with it. You'd be surprised how straightened out people get when you don't put up with it. See, you can, you know, in basketball, you got to shoot the ball in 30 seconds. That's it. You don't shoot the ball in 30 seconds, you lose. They take the ball away from you. You want to be bad, you got 30 seconds. The 31st second, we take the ball away from you. It's too tough to live that way for y'all. But it's possible. Probably most of the barriers in your relationship started out their life as a consideration on your part which you didn't communicate. I'm inviting you to take a look at some of the barriers in your relationship some of the stuff that's there for you and like a problem, see if you can trace it back to the beginning. I'm suggesting that you begin to notice that it probably started life out as a consideration that you had 
that you didn't communicate. If you're really in communication with someone, there's a natural product of that called affinity. One of the things that I can tell you for sure, that if you can't communicate your considerations in a relationship, it will not be long before you can't communicate at all, and it won't be long after that before you no longer have any affinity for the person with whom you're relating. Most of us have never trained ourselves to communicate our considerations. Now, in part, that's wise because mostly our considerations live like complaints, and nobody wants to hear your complaints. By the same token, it's possible to communicate a consideration in a way that has a certain opening and possibility in it. You see, you can share something with someone without making them wrong about it. For example, you don't have to say you fill in the blank. You can say rather I have this experience, which is actually a little bit more accurate anyhow, that such and such is the case. And I'm not saying that it is. I'm just saying that I want you to know that that thought comes up for me, or that feeling comes up for me, or that consideration comes up for me, and I wanted to bring it up so that we could communicate about it. Now, maybe you have nothing to say about it. Or maybe, in fact, my consideration is actually valid. And if it is, this is an opportunity for you and I to be in communication about it. I tell you frankly, if you can't communicate about your considerations, you really cannot hope to conduct a relationship that's going to have much power in it or last for very long. The considerations begin to be a barrier to, sorry, considerations not shared, not communicated, begin to be a barrier to communication. When you stop communicating, you start to lose affinity. When you lose affinity, what's the point to the relationship? Unless you're sharing some other value in the relationship. Hard work, difficult things. You know, for instance, you have a sense of a lack of trust for someone. It's a brutally difficult thing to communicate when it's only a consideration. See, it's got to become so bad, you've got to accumulate so much evidence for your lack of trust that you've got a justification for an accusation. a very important point here, a very difficult point about relating, one which most of us have very little skill at 
and it's a skill which, made an, which, make an, which would make an enormous difference in our ability to conduct our relationships successfully. If we could teach ourselves to communicate our considerations when they lived as considerations in such a way they could be brought up without producing a defensive reaction, or at least brought up. It's worth practicing. Try with the little ones first. So they don't get into too much trouble in the beginning. Learn to express a communic learn sorry, learn to express your consideration like something you're sharing with the other person rather than something you're laying on top of them. You know, like in a partnership. It's hard work. Takes some real work. One has to work at it. It's worth doing. One of the other things is that in a relationship there has to be room for disagreement. People think there's something wrong in a relationship if there's a disagreement. For the most part, we're so stupid that we have no place to register disagreement in the relationship that can only show up as a cataclysm. See, if you can't disagree with dignity, only bad things happen. People who aren't given the possibility of disagreeing with dignity find a way to make trouble, to produce mischief. One of the things that helps to make a relationship work is to know that there's some room for being able to disagree, that you don't have to agree on everything, that it's possible to be fully, totally related profoundly related, even in the face of disagreement. And that the disagreement, rather than showing up like something wrong, shows up like something inevitable in any relationship. See, if you can disagree with dignity, there's room to disagree if there's the possibility for disagreeing. Disagreeing doesn't have to degrade the relationship. There's some real room for power in the relationship, like alignment. Now, it doesn't mean that you disagreed, you're out of alignment. I want you to understand what I'm saying there. There's some room in there for people, some power in there for people. See, one of the things that will come up in any relationship which you have is the issue of trust. Seems to be an integral part of any relationship. I've been studying trust for a long time. Living with the question, what is trust? What is actually present when later a person says, I trusted you?
Interesting, you know? Very interesting. I just realized that in most people's listening, the example I just gave was like a complaint. Most people would hear that, well, I trusted you. No, I meant when in fact you did trust. See, what was actually present at the moment about which you can later say, I really trusted them, So I think I'm beginning to see something in the space of the question, not like an answer, but like an opening. What I realized is, when there is an alignment of vision in a relationship, when there's an alignment of purpose, if you like, if you don't like the word vision, then when the person does something which is wrong, it shows up for you like a mistake and you move in to support them. But when you get the sense that a person is no longer aligned with you in their vision, no longer aligned with you in their purpose, when they make a mistake, it shows up like you can't trust them. So I'm saying that trust is a product of a shared vision. None of the same vision. One is not required to have the same vision that the other one has in order for there, for there to be trust. One simply needs for there to be trust and alignment that this is the person's vision. Then when the person makes a mistake, sorry, when the person does something wrong, it shows up like a mistake in the fulfillment of their vision, in the fulfillment of their purpose, and your trust elicits the behavior of supporting them in correcting the mistake. But when there is no alignment of purpose, when there is no alignment of vision, and they make a mistake, shows up for you like something wrong, like they can't be trusted. If you want to build trust in the relationship, in any relationship, if you want to build trust in any relationship, see, I want you to see something. There's no way that the Soviets can make a mistake in our eyes. Anything they do is proof that they cannot be trusted. Is it possible that the Soviets have made no mistakes? You see, the Americans have, we Americans, have the view that the Soviets never make a mistake. Is that possible? Or isn't that a little nutty? Now, I don't know a lot about Soviet thinking, but as much as I know about Soviet thinking, they are convinced we never make a mistake. Everything, they, everything we do only shows up like proof that we can't be trusted for them.
You know, people make mistakes. Really. Well-intended, good-hearted, sincere, honest people actually make mistakes. You want to know something else? Every sincere, good-hearted, honest, well-intended person has the thought when they make a mistake that it wasn't. They have the thought they can't be trusted. And both possibilities live there for them. And you, by extending trust to them, can determine whether it is a mistake or it is something for which they shouldn't be trusted. Pretty good, huh? It's lots of power. Very risky, though. Suppose they really can't be trusted. So if you want this phenomenon of trust in your relationships, if you can see the power that trust has in a relationship, and you're interested in bringing it into your relationship, the way you bring trust into a relationship is by communicating about your vision, about your most fundamental commitments, about your intention, about your purpose in life about your commitment for the relationship, about your vision for the relationship, so that there's a kind of an alignment on your vision, an alignment on the other person's vision, or the other person's vision if it's a team or an organization. When you've got an alignment of vision, when something goes wrong, it shows up as a mistake, something correctable, rather than as a proof that you can't be trusted. I want to go back to love for a minute. I want to ask you, for you, what love is. What is love for you? I mean, I really want you to sit there with yourself, not engaged in your opinions about love, but really, what is love for you? You know, it's not a question I'm asking you to give me an answer to. It's a question like an opening. So you can see what love is for you. See, maybe it's a certain kind of behavior. For a lot of people, People live as though, watch, people are that love is attention. 
People are that love is attention. People are that love is attention. They may not think love is attention, they may not feel love is intention, but they are that love is intention, attention. Is that what you are, that love is attention? Is that what love is for you, like you are, that love is attention? I'm not saying good or bad. Just useful to notice it. Useful to be in touch with that. Useful to have that be with you and you to be with that. See, what are you that love is? Not what do you say about love, not what do you think about love, not how do you feel about it, but what are you that love is? What are you that love is? I'd like you to begin to notice that whatever the answer that's emerging happens to be, whatever it is, it limits what love is for you. See, if you are that love is attention, then you aren't loved unless you're getting attention. Love is that wide. It's as wide as attention is, but no wider. So who are you that love is? I'll bet that whatever love is, whatever you are that love is, I'll bet that whatever love is is scarce. Bet whatever that stuff is is scarce. That there ain't a lot of it around. Useful to notice that as well. That we are, that whatever love is, is scarce. 